Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Oh, Jack. Jack O'Hara. Boy, you asked me some interesting questions, my man. It's a great question, Jack. Jack, hey, it's Josh Ryder. Hey there, Jack O'Hara. It's Johnny Damon. Jack, you had questions for me. Jack O'Hara? Absolutely. This message is for Jack O'Hara. Jack, how are you? Hey, Jack. Jack, hey, what's going on, man? How you doing? What's going on, Jack? Uh, listen, man, you know, you, you, you asked me a couple questions. Broadcasting around the world, you're listening to The O Show. In the show and uh, doing your thing, I mean, you've got some pretty big name guests. I've seen your, your stuff, so congratulations on your success. Jack O'Hara. Much nicer guy than Conan O'Brien with much better interviewing skills. Don't forget to share this episode on your social media. Now, let's get to it. I'm so bummed. I forgot to get my girl tickets for the show tomorrow, and now it's sold out. It's her freaking birthday. Oh, dude. She's definitely going to break up with you. She's definitely going to break up with me. Should have used TickPick. Wait, what'd you say? TickPick. Look. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What? There are no hidden fees. What'd you guys think I said? Oh, TickPick. I thought you said TickPick. No hidden fees. Download today. Episode 357 of the podcast. Thanks again to David Meltzer for coming on the show last week. That episode is available on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify. This is The O Show. I am your host, Jack O'Hara. And today we're mixing things up. We got Michael D. Goodman in the house, in studio, in the heart of Scottsdale, Arizona. He's a performance coach, 40-plus years in sales and business. I am looking forward to picking your brain, sir. Thanks so much for uh, making the haul from uh, Chandler today. It is a pleasure to be here, Jack, and having heard some of the previous podcasts, I am honored to be in the same stage as Darius Rucker. And <laughs> Darius Rucker is probably one of my favorite musicians uh, of all time. I know we kind of talked about that a little last week when we connected on Zoom, but yeah, I mean, that's a great guy. I've been lucky. You know, it's a mix of hard work because obviously there's been a lot of hard work to get to this point. Started this sure. show in my basement. Now we're in a fancy studio in Scottsdale. Um, but there's definitely been a lot of luck added into that. And again, I'm lucky and very grateful that you uh, took time out of your day to come into the studio and to kind of, again, let me pick your brain about your career today. Well, my biggest concern is that when you start picking, you're going to find there's not a lot there. So let's see if we can't expand on whatever has value for you. Oh, we'll find out. I'm a very curious guy, 22-year-old kid trying to find my way. I mean, there's a lot of things that I feel like you've experienced in your career, not only in your career, but in your life, because they kind of go hand in hand. I was kind of reading your profile on, on, on your personal website that you have talking about your, your first start, your first job in sales. Uh, and I think we actually have the exact quote, if Zach, you want to pull that up, uh, about how your first gig, uh, the guy who gave you your job was very supportive, wanted to give you your start. And here it is. here's the exact quote. Uh, the first gig that you got was from your dad, and he fired you a year and a half in. I kind of wanted to pick your brain about <laughs> why did he fire you, and what did you learn from that, and do you still utilize some of that stuff today? Because I feel like that's a very tough situation to come out of, but at the same time, a very valuable lesson in return. 
Well, that is the foundation of everything I've achieved since that moment. But yes, yeah. uh, what if you what you want to know about is no matter what or how you look at it, it sucked. If this is a family show, it wasn't very fun. And, and so, uh, Dad, who knew me all of my life, knew that I was capable of walking into a room and just talking to anybody and being comfortable instigating conversations. He was a physician when he started his technology company. He wasn't experienced at it, and he certainly didn't understand sales. So he said, hey, come and be my sales guy. I said, okay. And, and I went to work for him, and uh, he fired me a year and a half later when I had sold nothing. I didn't know who to talk to. I didn't know how to pick up the phone. I didn't know how to get people into what we now call the funnel to get them involved in buying the computer timeshare services we were selling. It, it was a difficult situation. It was scary. And what I have learned since then is that every salesperson worth their salt has gone through the exact same emotional structure their first days or first part of their career in sales. Now, was that something that you were passionate about going in, or did he just want to give you the opportunity, you know, just to start out? Like, here's what we do. I want you to grow from this and almost, you know, kind of take over for me, kind of like a family tradition thing. Yes. I, I am sure that in retrospect, his thinking was, hey, I will be able to pass this off to my kid. He'll have a business. And, you know, they knew my grades, so they wanted to make sure I was taken care of as I got older. I think that that was his thinking. Um, but I didn't know what I was doing in that space. And, and so I know that he wanted to make his business work, but I didn't, I didn't help him very much, no. And, I mean, I feel like it's a very good thing for him to realize that off the bat as opposed to being like, all right, he's my son. I'm going to give him chance after chance after chance after chance, which in this day and age you see a lot more of. When you, I don't know if you've had some of those experiences knowing some of those people, but he kind of cut you off your leash right away, which stings, but at the same time, like, I feel like that was very yeah. valuable. He, I, I hate to tell you this. He stuck with me for a year and a half. I'm going to tell you that from what I know today, if I'm your sales manager and you stink as badly as I did when I was brand new, you're lucky to get three months, mm -hmm. right? So he did give me many, many chances. He tried to make it work, but he didn't, he didn't understand. And fortunately, that was the impetus to say, I am bigger than this. I can sell. I'm going to prove to you I can too sell. And that was the starting point for moving into what was then really being a 10% sales guy. That means always in the 10% of any sales organization that I was in. But it was a hard journey. It was a lot of learning. It was a lot of understanding what was going on at the time and how to make sales work. And what I've discovered since then, Jack, and I, and I hope this brings you joy as much as it does me, when you understand the skills of sales, what they really are is the skills of leadership, communication, relationship. They are powerful human skills that are not meant to take advantage of people, which is what lots of people have a sense of. They are meant to help you operate in life with much more power and purpose and peace of mind than you would have if you hadn't learned how to interact with other people. I totally agree with that. And, and what kind of experiences do you have, you know, leading past, you know, after the fact that that happened, that kind of formulated that in your mind? Because I feel like the experiences kind of mold that mentality. Absolutely. And, and here's what's happened. Um, I was working as sales up to about uh, 2000. In 2000, I left corporate America. I was the general manager of a global software training company for Arizona. And I had, um, uh, but in 2000, 
technology stunk and dropped like a stone. As, and so I lost major customers and, I, and there was nothing to do about it. And so I left the industry to start a sales training academy. Right? And what I learned in the process of trying to build a sales training academy was really the depth and breadth of sales. And, and where I got to understanding leadership and relationship and communication is all part of it, was studying all the structure of sales that existed out there and then how to apply it in a meaningful, powerful way, easy to digest. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? And so what, I've, what I get from working with people is that almost every entrepreneur has butterflies, which is a nice way of saying we get the snot scared out of us. When we stick our neck out there, we take a risk, but it has serious consequences if we don't make it work, yeah. right? And the biggest one is shame. Um, Brene Brown does a wonderful piece on shame, on vulnerability is good, but shame is powerful in that where we fail and where we refuse to put our neck out there to even try is because of an inner sense of not good enoughness where we think we are not good enough, which isn't true. Well, let me ask you straight up then, why do you think people feel that they're not good enough, you know, initially? Because it comes, it stems in everybody, I feel like, regardless of how confident you are, what's going on in your life, whether you're homeless or whether you're making millions, gajillions of dollars, you know, like, Sooner or later, you're going to have down moments and just feel down on yourself. Why do you think, where do you think that stems from? I, I studied this at depth a while back, and I really tried to understand why do we do this. And I, all I've come to understand is this: there's a binary code for how people behave and why. And this is one of my favorite little mathematical formulas. The binary code of human behavior is that people always take action to move towards a feeling of being loved and lovable, and we take action to move away from the fear of loss of love or lovability. And it is how we are programmed from youth that when we observe an event, we recognize that as one or the other at a deep level. Mm -hmm. That is, if we see a man hitting a woman, then immediately we know that we respect women and we care about women and that's bad and wrong. And that's the that's person is operating from a fear of loss of love and, and if I step in and do something I'm doing it because I care about that that human who's getting hit wow so how does you know these experiences kind of lead to you you know talking about that in that retrospect of coming across and helping other human beings being you know their coach in a sense to help them find the inner things that are going to help them moving forward as opposed to you know quote unquote giving them what they need they already have it instilled in them it's just about you know uncovering it and discovering what they need in order to succeed you've done your work around coaching haven't <laughs> you well done yeah there's the the inner belief is that everybody already knows pretty much the technical side of everything that they need to know but if they have fears if they have shame if they have things and we all do as you mentioned and it's part of the default operating system uh, if we do uh, then they will bite us in the butt yeah. in our growth mode. So we get out there, we hang ourselves out a little bit, the risk factor raises, and all of a sudden the fear raises with that. And we have to know how to manage our own fear and have what I call instrumentation, uh, how on target are we, to, to know that we're in good shape. Yeah. But we don't always, and things happen that we don't expect, so... Fear is a healthy awareness, 
but if it drives our behavior, it's causing us trouble. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of people, and my life included, I'm still 22, I still got a long ways to go, it's still going to have, you know, those quote-unquote breakthrough moments. You know, I feel like there's a, a wide difference between having breakthrough moments that kind of help you throughout certain times in your life as opposed to finding your true identity. So what do you think is kind of the difference there, and how do you help people find their true identity as a coach? Well, the true identity exists. Yeah. Right? And if you're not touching it, there's, there's one of two things happening, both based in fear. I'm either afraid of going there, um, and there's a shame, a shame thing hidden, or I have a blind spot that is covering up that the shame thing is there, and I can't touch it. In fact, I don't even want to, mm-hmm. um, because I'm afraid that the strategies I've created to be where I am now in my life, I'm afraid that the strategies I've created, if I let go of them, I will no longer be successful. It's just an internal battle of your own will. Mm-hmm. The real trick is to know yourself as somebody who will step into your greatest self and continuously set a designed life set of goals. This is just my, my personal coaching structure, right? So I, I, I invite all of my clients to set bigger than life goals and then create the living into it. That shows up the things that are uh, fe- uh, causing fear for them. They're, they're now taking risks and their hesitancies and whatever show up. And then we can work through the fears, which, by the way, never existed in the first place. We made them up. Exactly. <laughs> right? Okay. So we work through those, and then they are uncovered to go take the next step. So what were your either one big experience or multiple different experiences that kind of inspired you to think this way? Because, you know, you can have dark experiences like your dad firing you, you know, giving you a shot and, you know, family firing you. That's got to be tough. That's just the one off the top of my head where you could be like, oh, I could be bitter about this. I could be angry about this and turn it into something and use that through bitterness and angriness. Or you could use it through love, through your passion, through your compassion to do what you want to do. What kind of triggered your brain to think that way and want to help people? First off, I think every human being is architected to want to help other people. I think that's our design as people. When you have somebody taking advantage of other people, there is a fear bruise, emotional bruise in their soul that helps them feel powerful in that space, which is their substitute for feeling lovable. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. And people will be mean and rude and harsh to other people, but they're still operating from that same binary code in one form or another. Uh, for me, I cannot tell you the exact answer other than I've had a lifetime full of successes and a lifetime full of failures. Certainly that one with my dad was a major failure, and we have two choices. We can quit and, and tuck our head in the sand, or we can say, nope, I'm going to fight this battle, and I'm going to win it, right? And I, and I suspect that the founding place from that comes from your sense of, uh, unconditional love you found somewhere as a child, that's a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Okay. But when you choose to, to fight through it and you win at the game you're playing, then y- you develop a whole new strength and a whole new uh, sense of, of your own power and identity and purpose and peace of mind and all kinds of other cool things. You're, you're making faces at me. Is there a question behind that? I'm, 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 a, I'm a curious guy, so I don't know if this is confidential... Um information or not but based on the experiences you've had with you know certain clients certain people that you've coached to kind of again un, you know discover what it is that makes them who they are mm-hmm. how was there any particular one that was more difficult than the other that you'd be willing to talk about 
I can talk about it, but I may change the facts around it so that person is Go never identified. It. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Uh, one of the more difficult ones that I am working with is a 47-year-old man who is in the middle of not having to work for a period of time but trying to do some stuff, and in that process has a complete history of not good enough from a parental background and blames parents for lots of stuff. They are trying, they are taking action to move forward, but they keep running into their own sense of I'm not good enough, right? A long time ago, by the way, one of the people I got to study with was the author of 10 Days to Self-Esteem, and his name escapes me right now, but he's a famous psychiatrist. That means he's an MD as well as a psychologist Mm -hmm. and had the capacity um, to prescribe drugs. And he said one of the greatest things, he said, do we treat this with with words or do we treat this with drugs? Well, if they're not responding to words, then use drugs. Yeah. Right? Okay. This is a person, the person I'm talking about now has um, uh, an antidepressant medication that when they're on, they're far more comprehensive and far more, I want to say, malleable to suggestions, to taking action in the face of their fear. But when they're not, the fears stop them and they hold back and they're, they have, um, Uh, sometimes rough relationships with their significant other, sometimes rough relationships with their children, and and they take them at a deep level of sensitivity. What is the problem for me is that they hold on to their strategies like a desperate life preserver in the middle of the ocean. Mm -hmm. But they don't like their life either. And when I confront them with what is a hard confrontation but very real, you've got a choice you can live with everything you don't like, or you can let go of the strategies that are keeping you stuck. Which do you choose, right? They're in position to recognize what makes the most sense for them, but they struggle with it. They fight yeah. it. And, and four hours later, they may have completely let go of what we worked on. Yeah, I mean, you're dealing with all of these different people that, you know, may listen to you a, a lot easier. There's going to be few that hold on to some of those past, you know, struggles. Like, it's very hard. Like, me personally, like, I've gone through uh, situations where, you know, I'll stub my toe one day and, like, think back to the first kid that bullied me back in first grade and, like, all comes together, you know? Like, you got to let that stuff go. You know, like, all it all comes back and it all just piles up. So think about this for just a second. Do you mind if I walk you through this real quick? Yeah, go for it. When a kid bullied you in first grade... You told yourself a story about what happened. Yeah. What was that story? The story that happened personally, he spilt yogurt on me and then blamed me and then I got in trouble and got detention. Didn't feel good. And what did that mean about you? That meant that uh, I was the bad guy in the story at the time when I was in first grade because I was five years old. My brain wasn't fully developed. But in my head, I was the bad guy because I was the one that got in trouble. Yes. Exactly what you said is going on in the lives of children and adults every day all over the country, all over the globe. They perceive themselves as the bad guy. The story that they told themselves is that I'm a bad guy in this situation. And it happened when you were four, four and you're now 16, 17 years later, and you still carry in this situation, I'm the bad guy. That's the kind of hidden or, or blind spot things that we deal with through power coaching, through performance coaching. And at what age did you realize this? Because I feel like you growing up, you had your own experiences where you probably had felt the same way. And then you realize, like, hold on, I got to stop and kind of redirect my thinking. There is an old adage in psychology that says 
All the psychologists in the world got into the field because they were looking for their own answers. I can guarantee you I am that person, and I am all of these things that I talk about. And I'd love to tell you uh, I know exactly where all these things, but I don't. I just know when I feel something that it's coming from X place, and I have some strategies now that are different to deal with it. The first one is, by the way, just so you know, recognizing that the person who made up the story of you're the bad guy was you. It never existed anywhere in the world but between your ears, and you can change the story anytime you choose. Yes, sir. Does that, you know this now. Yes, sir. You've done your own work, haven't I've you? I've learned. I've grown since I was four. Right? Okay. And it's bloody and painful, but it's really worth it, isn't it? Hasn't it been worth it for you? Oh, for sure. I wouldn't change anything for the world. You know, there's been a lot of ups. There's been a lot of dark moments. But again, it's made me who I am, and it's brought me to an understanding where I could look back at those things and say, hey, they happen for a reason, and when things like that happen moving forward, I'll have the understanding of knowing that this was meant to happen, and I just got to move forward with it. Right? I'll give you one more uh, that you can hold on to if you don't already know this. Viktor Frankl was a, was a Holocaust survivor and a psychiatrist in, uh, in a camp and um, studied the human condition and how to operate in that space. And he has one of the greatest lines I've ever heard, between stimulus and response there is the space, and in that space is our power to choose what we want, and in that choice is our freedom and, and our power. Now, I might have messed up that quote a little bit, but that's a fairly good paraphrasing of it, right? Our power to choose exists in every moment, right? But we lose track of that. And so when I'm the bad guy, when I get into something, I have the power to choose this, mm -hmm. right? And, and that, by the way, the guy who I was talking about earlier, whose name I couldn't remember, Dr. David Burns, wrote 10 Days to Self-Esteem, go. Feeling Good, the New Mood Therapy. And, and he was very good about creating language structures to move past emotional bruising and emotional pain to, to help. As a sales guy, that was brilliant. Yeah. But more as a coach, those are power tools, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Everybody has the power to choose, and what if we chose to pick things we wanted in our life, I'll give you an example in a moment, and we lived into them, we took the actions and lived into them, who would we know ourselves afterwards? Hmm. I invite my clients to come up with bigger, bigger objectives than they think that they have. Uh, at the beginning of this year, in fact, in October last year, I said, I, I'm going to do three things this year, because if I don't model it, I stink as a coach, right? And I said, I'm going to get ready to climb the Grand Canyon. By climbing, I mean go down and then up. It's not up and then down. There's a distinction that matters right there, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk the Grand Canyon bottom and then back up all in a day. I am going to lose 100 pounds, and I'm going to increase my revenue stream by $100,000 in one year. Not because I wanted to make that much more money. Well, I do, but not because of that, but because I wanted to prove myself by choosing and living into it, I could. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, just so you know, I'm, I'm hiking South Mountain regularly. I am working on hiking Squaw Peak four times, but I'm not there yet. But I'm, I'm in shape, and I've lost 57 of the 100 pounds so far, and I am, uh, my, my uh, income is going up really well. So that's a, is that a personal thing that you always had in the back of your mind to do and you're, again, kind of using it to show people, like, you can do anything that you want to do and use that as inspiration for others while at the same time, you know, creating income? Um, 
It, 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 well, because a lot of what I coach in is income producing, and I needed yeah. to have a proof of concept that I can yeah. not only tell you how to do it, but I can do it. And I don't really tell people how to do it, but I certainly lead them to take those actions, right? Okay. And so I, I, it was, for me, a credibility step. Yeah. I mean, leading by example. I mm -hmm. think that's like the number one thing as a coach that you got to do right off the bat to show people that are following you in a sense and say like, oh, hey, if he could do it, I can do it. Like, I'm not going to teach you anything I don't know how to do myself. Right. That's exactly. I, I was listening to John Maxwell, who is one of the most prolific authors on leadership in the world. And um, I, I'm going to do a presentation with his material called The Five Levels of Leadership, which I think is excellent material for business leaders. And he, he said really clearly, the best way to lead is to be the role model for what you want. Yeah. Right? And so, but this is just instinctive. We, I want to do this. Right? I, I, I hit an age marker, which is about twice your age. Thank you, youngster. And um, went to, decided that I needed to get in shape and I needed to lose the weight. And the other one I wanted to do. Right? And so mm -hmm. those, those were inspired... The real thing about taking on an objective like that is you have to want the result. Yeah. Right? So that you have enough impetus and the want to to get through the fears and uncertainties that you're going to face on the way. Did you have any early on mentors, you know, besides your father that kind of helped mold to you to want to, again, think this way? Not only think this way, but to do what you've done for 40 plus years when it comes to being in business, being in sales. Because, again, starting out as a young kid, you could have been anything you wanted to be, but this is what you chose. Um, that's a that's a that's a brilliant question for which I haven't given any canned answer. I haven't thought of any good canned answers, but I will share this. In my lifetime, I've had some excellent teachers who who encouraged me and affirmed me. And I remember in business law and in sixth grade, Mr. Mendenhall from sixth grade, one of the greatest guys in the world, right? But he believed in me, and that was a big deal. And that gave me impetus to step up in in times that were uncomfortable. But that didn't lead to this. What led to this was I didn't like where I was. I didn't like what was going on in my life, and I wanted something more, and I could never put my finger on it. Uh, I, I, there's always been a pilot light to do something big in my life. Tell me you don't feel that pilot light in your oh, yeah. soul, right? 1,000%. Okay, and it's there, and you want to do something big, but I never knew exactly what it was. And it wasn't until I got into the space that I'm in, at sales as a performance game, sales as a leadership game, like, I have a thing where I can go down into Maryvale right now, teach sales, and help kids move from a poverty position to $100,000 a year uh, income by getting a sales job. In fact, I have a structure in my mind to get mentors in Maryville uh, and businesses bolted up to those kids so that they get some mentoring and help them get jobs in that space. And I think, I, Grand Canyon, if you're listening, help me out, man. <laughs> If Grand Canyon University will hire those kids in their sales department, then, I, then they can get a college education. So I can take them from a rough poverty position to a college education, $100,000 a year, and all in the vehicle of sales, helping other people, listen to this, grow in depth the way I've been able to do and the way you've been able to do in your lifetime. That's very interesting. And you've probably had a ton of, you know, you know to go back in that timeline of people who you trusted, people who you, you didn't trust, people who you grew to trust and not trust, you know? Because yeah. sales, whether, you know, I'm in sports, music, film, whatever it is, you know, whatever you're doing in your life, you're selling yourself, you're selling sponsors, you're selling this, that, whatever. Yes. How, you know, just straight up, how do you know who to trust? Because the sales game, there, there's 
people, there's good people, and then there's people who seem like good people, but they're really not good people. Um, there's a couple of things about this. Number one, you don't. And, and it, as a salesperson, it's no until it's a yes. Don't bet the farm on a yes until it's a yes. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, number two, uh, people are very nice and they don't want you to feel bad, so they'll tell you things that look like yes but aren't yes. It's not a matter of trust in that point. It's a matter of I'm not comfortable with this. And so, that's, so if you depend on that, it's not whether you trust them or not, but you can have empathy for them having a discomfort with hurting your feelings. Can mm, you not? Right. Okay. There are people you cannot trust. And I'm a big fan of trusting your gut, and I believe we all have a sense of empathy. And if your gut says it's not going to work, then whatever reason your gut's talking to you, it's not going to work for you. It's worth trusting. Um, the second thing is watch for the little promises. If they can't be in integrity, if they can't be their word on the little promises, the big promises will fall apart. If their agenda is only about them, they're not going to be trustworthy for you. And some other markers like that. What were some of your, again, I go back to personal experiences because that kind of ties everything together. What were some of those early on experiences that you had that you knew who you could trust in and who you couldn't trust? My neighbor kid sold me a toy called an Irish mailer, which is a physical sort of thing that you push and pull and it propels you forward and it broke the first day I had it, right? How much did you spend for it? Uh, How much did you pay for it, I should it, say? Yeah, not much, I don't remember, but I was disappointed that it broke and, and, I, and I was mad at him. Could I trust him? I didn't, right? Whatever I spent on it back, and, and keep in mind that it was many years ago. Uh, as I say this, it could have been as many as 60 years ago, right? And, and, and I didn't trust, and after that, I didn't trust him. There's a, there, there's a thing here, and I haven't explored it a lot, and I, one day I will, and you'll invite me back, and we can have this conversation. I think if you don't trust, it's because you don't think you're trustworthy, Ooh. right? And if you don't think you are trustworthy, it's harder to trust other people. If you know you are good enough, you're trustworthy, and your purpose in life is to care about others then it's easier to trust. And if you get taken advantage of, what's worse, losing relationships because you don't trust anybody or trusting more than that, right, and getting hurt once in a while? That kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, kind of like to bring this full circle, you know, like if, you know, you're getting picked on or you're picking on a kid, that's because there's some insecurity about you that's not being yes. addressed, right? Yes. So in sales or regardless, if you're in a relationship with someone, and, and there's a lot on, like at stake. Yes. If, if you don't trust them, you're saying that kind of stems back to you not feeling as if you're trustworthy yourself. The attachment to distrust doesn't, if you don't trust them, the attachment to distrust exists in your heart and your mind. That's the only place it exists. It does, it's not ether. It's not dirt. It's not something you can feel or touch. It's ontological in your own mind. And so if it exists, it's because you have an attachment to it from your past. Yeah. Does that make sense? Okay. And it's something you've made up. But if you don't trust yourself, then there's a limitation in how powerful you can really be. How easy or difficult was it getting people to kind of buy into what we're kind of talking about now when you first started out coaching, when you first started bringing on clients? Oh. See, 
When I first started out coaching, I took on salespeople because I knew my game and I yeah. could prove it. And I had credibility. But I would get hired by people like my dad and I didn't understand and I didn't know how to tell them they were the problem. In any sales problem, in any organization, the problem starts at leadership. And I didn't know how to tell those guys, you're the problem, right? That's when I signed up to be a John Maxwell. I was, I'm a founding partner of the John Maxwell team, and I signed up for that because I wanted all of that library of stuff to go back and say, here, we're going to study this together, and I'm going to walk you through leadership stuff. And through that, I could help them get better at what they needed to to do right yeah and that the first from 20 years to 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 the first 10 years that was about the best i could do to get there when i realized when i got myself squared away and I, I this this process has been ongoing all of my life when i got myself powerfully squared away i got good at just being confronting the elephant that's in the room and speaking the truth right and i have lost opportunities because of that but I've lost opportunities that I would never have been successful because the person was never going to own where they were out of whack. Yeah. I mean, you probably have had situations in your life where you're insanely busy and it's kind of hard to retain that sort of clarity in that sense that you were just talking about, you know, knowing who to trust, who not to trust, you know, who, who, how you could properly coach someone without like your own kind of not negativity, but like your own toxicness in a way. Get yeah. in the way. One of the first exercises I do with any client, and one of the exercises I believe in for myself, and I'll share it with you, is take out a piece of paper. Here, we can do this now. Here's an index card. Write down your top seven values you hold on to as a man and as a business leader. And own those values. And when you recognize that that's who you are, somebody else's garbage doesn't run your life. And you get to choose whatever you say there. Yeah, that's very true. Right? So for me, the first item in my list is I am a difference maker. Period. So whatever I do in life, I know myself as a person who must show up and make a difference for others. Now, when somebody wants to mess with me from their lifetime, that's their business. But if I'm going to hold on to my value as a human to be a difference maker, my job is to understand them that where they're coming from is a painful existence. Does that make sense? Okay. And I don't have to beat them up and I don't even have to make them wrong. My sense of identity and ego is set because I choose it and because of my faith. And, and, and I'm good choosing my faith as the foundation of my sense of identity. Does that make sense? Okay. And in that, somebody else's problem isn't my problem. My job is to love them either way. I mean, you, you hit it right on the head there. My first thing that I wrote down was actually faith. Because yeah. if you have faith, not only in yourself, faith in God to know that everything kind of happens for a reason. Like in the moment that we were talking about before, you know, growing up when I'm four or five years old, something bad happens to you. Yes. The entire world's breaking down. You don't know what's going on. Yes. But now you can understand, be like, all right, there's a bigger, th there's a bigger picture here. Yes. You know, something's on the horizon. This had to happen. If you, if you study the faith you and I share, if you study it, it says you come to that place through faith alone, right? Okay, faith alone is nothing but a choice to believe something you didn't previously believe. And remember, between stimulus and response, there's a choice, what, what we get to believe. We get the choice to believe that. 
even if there's nothing but a secular value and holding on to there's a there's a path and a way and a right way to go even if we do that from a secular because we don't want to get caught up in the church ladies admonishments of how not good enough we are because we mm -hmm. spoke up in church or something right if we don't like the dogma we can still hold on to the value because we choose it does that make sense yeah. I totally understand. Did you grow up in a Christian household? No. No. Okay. My dad was the son of a Talmudic scholar who ran the synagogue in a small town in Poland. His father was a Talmudic scholar, ran the synagogue in a small... And his father. Three generations of people who ran the synagogue. And when the Cossacks came through the town in the early 1900s, it was a good time to leave or, you know, they would all perish as a family. Right? So they left, and they came to this country. And Dad wanted to be a physician. This rough time in this country, he faced a lot of anti-Semitism. They, they were on Long Island, New York. He wanted to go to medical school, and he wanted to get into, um, well, medicine. A and he faced a lot of anti-Semitism from the colleges there. He finally got into uh, Cook County Hospital uh, for his internship. And, uh, and became a doctor, and then some Japanese people dropped some bombs in Pearl Harbor, and then he joined the Army, <laughs> and the next thing you know, he was off in the South Pacific, right? I could never go back to him and say, you should try Christ. And one of my brothers had at one point, and he was excommunicated from the family from a, for a long period of time. But no, my dad was rigid in his Judaism, and the dogma that drives people away from Christianity drove me away from Judaism, and, and, but I wanted faith. And when I married a woman with three kids, we, we needed faith for the kids. And it was a lot easier for me to go to their church and, instead of telling three kids we're never doing Christmas again. So, yeah. Oh, my God. And they, they were accepting of that right off the bat when you made the decision, like, this is what I want to do now. To go to church yeah. or, or, or to become a Christian? Yeah. Well, it wasn't right off the bat, um, but I'd sit there and I'd listen. So some part of the journey was the pastor of Central Christian Church in East Mesa was, um, um, his name will come to me in just a moment, uh, used to stand up there and talk about something I was fascinated by, the correlation of spirituality, psychology, and physics, but he did it all with biblical quotes. It's like, how are you doing that? What is that? And I don't get it. And so I went to him one day and I said, who is this Jesus guy and what does he mean in my life? And that was the that was the real start of the journey. Interesting. So looking back at all that now, obviously, I feel like that kind of switch in your brain or that side of your brain has been opened up to so many different, you know, thoughts and, you know, curious questions, you know, that you didn't have growing up as a kid because you were always not taught that it was, like, not for you. It was just a different world, I feel like. And, and it was hard to understand. I don't know how many people are going through, what does this really mean? I mean, I know there's people who don't like Christianity. I know there's people who don't like Muslims. And so what does all that stuff mean? And it's hard to, it was hard to put my finger on it. And I certainly understood the five books of the, the first, but, but I didn't understand how they related and why Christians didn't like Jewish people. And so I, um, I wanted to know. And at the end of the day, uh, I, got, I got my answers, right? Yeah. And, and I think it's all one God. The, in Hebrew, the Shema is, listen up, Israel, there's only one God, the Lord is God, right? And it's clear. And, and that's why Jewish people don't believe in Christ as a, as a there's only one God. And, and in Christianity, we have a triune God, right? This is maybe not the direction I thought we were going to go, but it's fine. And, uh, there, Let it rip. And how do we reconcile the two, right? And, and yet when I got the answers, it just made sense to me. And that's when I got baptized. 
Wow. At what age did you get baptized? 33 or 4. Wow. Yeah, I'm stubborn. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I'm this, I grew up in uh, Roman Catholicism. Yes. I grew up in a Catholic, uh, went to a Catholic high school, Catholic church, and it was more about this is what you need to do. If you do this, you're going to heaven. If you do that, you're going to hell. Yes. That's the general sense I got as a kid growing up. The dogma. There's probably a lot more to it that I didn't quite understand because it was kind of being shoved down my throat, but that's what I took away from it. I, I get that 100%. That's my life, just a different flavor. Yeah, and when I went to Grand Canyon University, you know, uh, different type of teachings, you know, people tell their, um, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Their stories, stories testimony? Their testimonies. Um, it's just different. It's real, you know? It's not, uh, this is what happened back in the day. This is what's happening now, and this yeah. is how we can relate it to what happened then. Yes. Who we are as a person... Uh, I, who we are as a person fundamentally changes when we recognize that no matter what, we're never not good enough, right? Because whatever it is that causes us to be not good enough has been taken away. That's a rough belief system to take on. But when we own that, then the whole world opens up and our capacity to achieve and perform at higher levels skyrockets. And I feel like that's something you have to relearn daily. Default operating system. Yeah. Fear of not good enough runs your life. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but when you choose that, because we've been given choice, when you choose that, then it gets easier as you go. I mean, that, that's very. It's interesting because, again, if, if you're not like you just said, kind of the default setting mode in, in your head to say, like, OK, like everything that happens in my life is because of me in a sense. Like yes. there, there's there's outside factors for sure whoever you're getting involved with what you're doing, what yes. you want to pursue, that things are going to happen. But it's your mindset at the end of the day that's going to determine what you're going to do moving forward, whether you're going to keep going, whether you're going to stop, whether you're going to give up, quit or just keep pushing forward, keep grinding because you're, that's what it's so about. So on target. You're right on target. You know what I think? Jack, I think one day you should do a podcast from this table, but you sit in that chair and ask a question, then jump over to this chair Answer the question because your answers are right on target. Then jump back and ask a question, and I think it would be a brilliant show. I don't know how much money I'd make off of that. Oh, well, all right. I can't help you. <laughs> Better you should make money off of me. If I can help you, I'm happy to do that. So kind of to bring this full circle of kind of helping people find that sense of clarity, like everything happens for a reason, everything happens because of what your actions are. Um, is that kind of what Revenue Kinetics is about, or is it kind of, you know, mixing and matching with, you know, teaching them the business side and the sales side? What, what's that more about? So over the years, it morphs and pivots as I go. Um, what's really come up is that I love working with entrepreneurs. I mean, I cannot tell you how much I think these guys are the modern-day Christopher Columbi. Is that a plural for Columbus? These are the modern-day Christopher Columbi who are out there risking it every day, putting their self on the line. They put their identity at stake, they put their fortune at stake, and they go out there and they fight to grow a company. And in the process, they bring other people and help them have more money and serve their community. And in a free enterprise uh, community, a company must be good to survive. It's yeah. just the nature of the free enterprise capitalistic society. So I love those guys, and I love their fighting. And those who are in growth mode versus lifestyle company – I cannot tell you how much joy it brings me to make a difference in somebody's life like that. Right? And so that's my thing. <clears throat> Today, I coach 
uh, executives from a $120 million company to a $500,000 company. I, I have a sweet spot in between those numbers that, that don't go that. But what both those guys are growth-oriented, and they want to change their lives. And if they're going to do the work, I'm going to support them. That makes it. Oh, and they write me checks, so that's nice too. <laughs> I mean, that's nice. You know, you're you're getting paid for doing it at the end of the day, which feels good. But I feel like you doing the thing and helping people get to that point in their lives where they're they're thanking you for for all that you've done, and they're finally having those breakthrough moments in their lives that help them see the brighter future for themselves. That's got to feel good. That's probably one of the bigger inspirations in all of it. There's an old line that says, I, would you do what you do if you didn't get paid? Yeah. I said, this is my life, man. Yeah. I, I, right? As long as, as long as I had food on the table, roof over my head, I would keep doing this. And, and I, I do it for people who don't pay also. Right? Why? Because it becomes a calling. This is just who I'm meant to be in the world. Uh, I mean, it, it's very inspiring to talk to you, and we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. I didn't want to take too much of your time. Hopefully I didn't, but uh, I want to thank you so much for being gracious enough for taking the time out of your day. Is there anywhere we could, uh, our audience can find you on your, on your website or email? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, for some reason, my web host migrated my website and I haven't seen it since. Ooh. And so, but I do have another, a personal website, michaeldgoodman.com where you can find things, which you found that quote from. Yep. Um, but my, you know, my email address is really hard. Okay. My, my first name is Michael. My middle initial is D. Ask me what the D stands for. What does the D stand for? Damn. Michael. Damn oh, good man. Wow, really? No, not at all. But I like That's the damn That's great good marketing, man. though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's really David. Okay. Michael D. Goodman at gmail.com. Well, Michael Damn Goodman. Thank you so much again for uh, coming in. I, I wish you luck on your uh, uh, you hike in the Grand Canyon. Thank you. Everything that you're doing. I hope you continue to inspire you know hundreds of thousands of people that you know you, you've been able to touch the lives that you've again been able to coach thus far. Uh, and again, this is episode 357 of the podcast with Michael D. Goodman. I'm Jack O'Hara, and this is the O Show. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.